glad to, glad to be together with you. We are starting a new series this morning, um, but that I'm not even going to talk about that. We'll talk about that later when we get into it. Um, some of the biggest and hardest questions um, that we wrestle with as, as, as people, um, some of the biggest and hardest questions that I suspect that our neighbors are wrestling with uh, is one that I don't have an easy answer for. There, there are lots of questions that I have answers for that, that I would feel comfortable like writing them down on paper. Um, but, it, but it sounds something like this. If God exists, which is a question uh, that people wrestle with, if God exists and he's all-powerful, if he literally can do anything, um, that there are no limits on his power, and he's a good God, then why... Is there evil in the world? <laughs> because if he were not good, that would make sense. Like, if he were all-powerful and not good, then I could wrap my head around, like, this is why evil exists, because he's, he's not good. It's not, uh, it's not really hard to, uh, to do the calculus on that. Um, or if he wasn't all-powerful, then that would make sense, because he's good and he wants good to exist in the world, but he doesn't have the power to execute it. So either, so we come to this dilemma in our human minds where we think it's either or, either he's not good or he's not powerful or he just doesn't care, which would mean he's not good. And I think that those are the hardest questions to answer because as we come to God's word, he's really clear. I am good. I am the definition of good. Anything good that you have ever experienced is good because it's related to me. And he also says, I am all-powerful. There is nothing beyond the scope of what I could possibly do. Well, then, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> Why does it seem like, like evil people or, or bad or, or hurtful people get put in positions where they can just continue to do evil? And why does it feel like good people always kind of get uh, shoved under the boot of the people who are, who, are, um, who are doing the bad things? Like, God, what is it that you are actually doing? As I was talking to Carlos uh, about the series and kind of where we were going, his, his recommended title, I kind of like it, was, What in God's Name is Going On in the World? Like, what in God's name is happening right now? And I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but I'd like, to, I'd like for us to explore a story that really starts off uh, wrestling with those questions in a really real way. If you've been around church a while, um, when, when I tell you where we're going, you're going to be oh, I know this story. And I'm just going to ask you to not for a minute. Like, let's not jump into the next chapters. I want us to, to take the text as it sits and to wrestle with the questions it presents and the timing that it brings it up. There are answers. There is... Uh, a, a good news to this, but it doesn't start there. It starts really in, in, the, in the throes of how bad things are. So I'd invite you to turn together with me to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, if you want to use these blue Bibles, they're kind of tucked into the chairs in front of you. It's going to be on page 56. So we're right there at the beginning. Um, Exodus, and I'm going to begin in chapter 1. We're going to explore uh, the first 12 or so chapters of this book in this series. Um, and this morning, we're going to take a look at chapters 1 and 2. Um, it, this is a great place to start if, uh, if, you're, if you're new to neighborhood, like you're looking for a place to jump in. We're starting a new series. It's a great place to go. But I just need you to know, the series we were doing this before this, we were taking five and six verses at a time. Um, and I was preaching like 45 minutes. And now I'm going to do two chapters. So... I don't know where we're going to land, especially with how like, emotional I'm feeling this morning, but, but I'm in it. I'm ready for the adventure. Are you ready? 
Okay, excellent. Well, let's read these first couple of verses and we'll dive into it. Exodus chapter 1. This is, this is really exciting stuff. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, is that not the most exciting thing you've read all week? Doesn't that just touch your heart? Here's the names of a bunch of guys, and by the way, they're all dead. They're dead at the beginning of the story. Like, aren't we excited about this? What's actually happening here is he's giving us a summary of what's happened already in these books before. He's given a summary statement for the book of Genesis, which comes right beforehand. And, and this is in the middle of, of a series of five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all of which were written by a guy named Moses. And Moses doesn't show up until the second book. So Genesis was actually a prequel to what Moses wants to talk about, which is him, of course. Um, but... Uh, but here we've got a summary, and the thing that we need to take away from um, the book of Genesis, at least for the purposes of getting started here, is that there was a guy, his name was Jacob, and he also had another named Israel. So Jacob and Israel refer to the same person. The same guy has two names. He had 12 sons. Those are their names. One of the sons is named Joseph. He already lives in Egypt. But everybody else came to live with Joseph in Egypt. But then everybody died. So everybody's dead and all that generation. But they had kids. They were fruitful. And they multiplied. What's crazy, like we could get into, we, we could really get into, you think your family has some troubles. We could get into some family drama stuff if we went back and looked at what was going on in Egypt. Like, or what was going on in Genesis. Uh, there, was, uh, there was a rape to deal with, and that d led to murder, not only murder of the person who raped the, the lady, but also, like, the whole town uh, in vengeance. Like, there's, there's um, stealing wives and, and deception of wives. There's multiple wives to the same person. There's kids being sent as liaisons between the family, uh, the husband and wife relationship, trying to do bartering deals about whose bed he's going to be in that given night. Like, if you think your, pro your family has trouble, like, let me encourage you to, let's uh, explore the Bible. Like, the Bible is not sanitized as we like to think that it is. But in that jacked up family, with all of the craziness that's going on, God is watching over them. This small, dysfunctional family is specially cared for by God. And that's verses 1 through 7. All right? Let's read in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for them store cities, Pithom and Ramses. 
But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, and mortar, and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them slaves. So, let us... If I could take a step back, I meant to do this in the last section, but let me take a step back. Let us set us in time. So if this is an Old Testament chronology, so if we put uh, on this side Adam and Eve, and on this side the birth of Jesus, so we've got that. If we take as a if we take every name in every genealogy in the Old Testament, the minimum that we come up with is four thousand years. And if we stick those four thousand years on a timeline, this is what we have. Um, we've got Jesus at year one, you know, A.D., B.C. We've got Jesus at year one, and we've got Adam and Eve at 4,000. So where we are in the timeline, we've been talking about Jesus in our last series, all the way back around 1 A.D. I don't know what that noise was. But we're somewhere around 1,500 B.C., all right? So we're, we're way before the time of Jesus, um, and way before a bunch of other things. But that's, that's about where we are in history. And you've got this family that was uh, in a land of Israel, in the land of Israel, which is a separate place from Egypt, that had moved into Egypt, and they had just been fruitful, and they had multiplied, and God had blessed them. And that blessing became a, a, source, of, uh, a source of concern for the country that they were living in. These immigrants were coming in, and they were multiplying like rabbits, and there's just too many of them, and eventually they're going to take over, so we need to oppress them. Now, the text is not, does not give us any of these dates, but we're about 250 years after the introduction. So from Joseph, who brought everybody into Egypt, to now what's going on here, there's been about 250 years. So I'm, I'm terrible at math. Can somebody tell me what 250 years ago was from today? What year was it 250 years ago from today? What you got, so? It's 2022 minus... 2023. Happy February. 2023 minus 250. 1773. Okay. Anybody got an idea of, like, what was in the headlines in 1773? Do we have an emotional connection? Taxes. This is like American Revolution history era, right? So, so we've got about as much distance between us and George Washington as this generation had between Joseph, who brought them into Egypt. 250 years they'd been in there. And, and they keep, they're just doing their thing. They're just living their life, and God is blessing them, and he's blessing them with kids. And the more that God blesses them, the more they become a threat to the land that they're living in. And so the land just not only makes them slaves, but they continue to increase the oppression. God's blessing, uh, or God's blessing becomes the cause for oppression. And then God's blessing in the midst of oppression becomes the cause for more oppression. Like, because they see, all right, we're making them slaves, but even the more that we oppress them, the more they grow, so we need to oppress them more, which, I mean, eventually you'd think they'd pick up. But they like to think that they're being shrewd. They're being sneaky in dealing with, uh, in dealing with the Israelites. But it's not working. Verse 15. 
Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. All right? So they've got this uh, thing that's going on. Uh, they've got this oppression. They're now slaves. And the more that they, they give them harder and harder work, the more they, they are blessed. And so they give them more. And so they finally decide, okay, we just need to kill the newborn babies that are being born, the males. We're not going to kill the males of the workforce because that would be imprudent. Like, we need them to do the things, right? But we'll make sure that they can't uh, reproduce after their own kind. We'll let them have girls because, you know, we can then use them for lines of our own, but we'll kill the men, the, the, the male children that are born. So this, this blessing leads to oppression, and then blessing within the oppression leads to outright, like, persecution and, and, and conflict, uh, a direct assault. The enemy always attacks the children first. But... As the Egyptians are trying to deal shrewdly with the Israelites, the Israelites now are dealing shrewdly back with the Egyptians. The midwives say, no, 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 we're not, we're not going to do that um, because we Hebrew women. We not, I think of like Scandinavian. We're not, we're strong. We, we give birth before they come. Like that's the picture in my head. I know that that's probably not accurate, but that's how I hear, that's how I hear the midwives talking. Uh, is, uh, Hebrew women, not like Egyptian women. We're strong. <laughs> but God de dealt well with the midwives. And there's a, there's a conundrum here. If you really want to chew on, uh, on, a, on a dilemma and some tension in Scripture, like there's a dilemma here. Because we are never more like the devil than when we lie. But we're never more like God than when we are preserving life. And if you want to talk about a dilemma, you've got women here who are lying to preserve life, and God blesses them. And I don't know how you parse that out, but it's here in the book, so I wanted to point it out to you. We're never more like the devil than when we lie, but we're never more like God than when we're preserving life. Now, all government governments and officials serve God's purposes and should be honored. If you want to read more about you should obey your government and pay your taxes, that's in Romans 12. Um, but we may disobey those who require us to violate God's core principles. I will not murder for you. The shrewdness and the blessing increased the scope of the attack in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast to the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So it was just, let me talk to the midwives. They can handle this. We'll kind of keep this in-house. I don't have to involve anybody. Now he's saying to all the people, if you see a Hebrew boy, just chuck him in the river. Like We're, we're, we're going to get rid of these rabbits. It's too much. 
Just chuck them in the river. God's blessing is the cause for increased oppression and direct assault. Like, aren't you kind of, if, if you're in the Hebrew shoes, you're like, God, could I just have a little bit less blessing right now? Like, could you just hold back a bit? Because I'm having trouble, like, handling what you're dealing with. Like, I have all these kids. Like, it's a sign of your, of your blessing and your favor. But it's harder and harder to feed them. Why do you keep giving them to me? And now they're outright being murdered and thrown into the Nile. Like, what is happening? Where are you in this? Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. So... You don't know, who, or all you need to know is that Levi was one of the sons of Israel 250 years ago. Um, <laughs> Levi was uh, a real hothead. <laughs> now, so they've got these two folks that are getting married, and the woman conceived and bore a son. Oh no. Like, we just have an order that any Egyptian can just throw a baby into the Nile, and now she's conceived and bore a son. And so she hid him, uh, or and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So this woman gives birth to a child. She tries to hide him. You know, kids make noise. <laughs> you can only hide him for so months. I'm impressed that she was able to hide him for three months. Like, that's quite a feat. Um, but then when she realizes, like, I'm not going to be able to, to keep this under wraps for much longer, she does what Pharaoh tells him to do. She puts him in the river. He never said that she couldn't build him a boat. So she finds a basket, and she covers it. She makes it waterproof. She puts the baby inside, and she places it in the river in the reeds. Now, I know you've seen the movie. And it's like flowing down the river and all the crocodiles are trying to eat it. And like, I don't think that that's actually what's happening. I think she's sneaking in the morning to the riverbank where she knows somebody is regularly. She's strategic in how she, she is acting shrewdly with the Egyptians. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. What should be done to him, according to the Pharaoh's edict. Take him out of the basket and chuck him in the water, right? Now, verse 5, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women? To nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and when the child grew, she brought him to the Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So what should be done with this child? He ought to be cast in the Nile. What is done in verse 6? She takes pity on him. And Miriam, uh, we don't have her name here. She's named in, in chapter 6 later on. Miriam, Moses' sister, is like, 
hey, do you need, like, it looks like you're not lactating right now. Do you want me to go find somebody who's lactating and then, like, they can feed the child for you? And she's like, yeah, go find somebody. And I know just the lady who, who just gave birth about three months ago. Let me go see if I can find her. And so now Moses has been brought into the protection of Pharaoh's daughter, but then returned back to his mother to be cared for and nurtured. Not only that, God provided a paycheck for what she would have done for free. I think God's super cool. The Egyptians sought to deal shrewdly with the Israelites, but God's blessing opened up the door for a reversal of that shrewdness. Right? You see it? And now the mother gets to spend time with her son without fear, under the protection of the crown, to raise this son to tell him the stories of her family, to train a child in the way that he ought to go. Here, I think Moses learns the story of Joseph and his brothers 250 years ago, of Jacob, their dad, and Isaac, his dad, and, and Abraham. And Abraham's interaction with a God who said, I'm the only one. Abraham was a guy like, like average, average pagan Joe at the time. And, and average religion at that time was, was polytheistic, is a fancy word for multiple gods. Like there was nothing that set Abraham apart from anything at all. Like he, he was just going to the temples and offering the sacrifices to whatever God he needed that week. He, he worshiped multiple gods until God showed up to him, uh, Yahweh showed up to him in a particular night and says, I am the only one. You follow me. Hit the road and I'll tell you when you get to where I want you to be. And Abraham went and started this walk with God. And God said, through you, I'm going to bless all nations. And Moses hears that from his mom while she raises him under the protection of Pharaoh. I feel like there's probably some principles we could apply there. <clears throat> but that's not, that's, not, um, that's, that's not the end of it. It kind of gets worse. Uh, the kid grows up, unfortunately. Like they don't, say, they don't say small and squishy all the time. They grow up. <clears throat> um, and and this, this next section happens in four scenes. There's four different scenes. I'm going to try and break them out for you, but they all are, are moving us towards this thing. Stuff has not gotten any better for anybody else in Israel. They are still oppressed. They are, their children are still being murdered. They are still out in the fields laboring and sweating and toiling. But this one had mercy. And this one was set apart. And I find it fascinating. Like, Moses is going to get a lot of credit. We'll talk about him a lot. But it's incredible to me that as you read the scriptures, if you pay real close attention, if God is getting ready to tell the story about a man that he's going to use greatly, he will always start with his mom. And motherhood is a holy calling. And we live in an era where people want to look down on, 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 on women just for because you're just a mom. And I can't. If God wants to talk about something that he's getting ready to do, that's going to be massive, that's going to change the course of history, he will always, always, always start with, his, with their mom. 
Uh, that's not in my notes, sorry. <clears throat> Four scenes. <clears throat> One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So this is our first scene. Moses is, is grown now. Uh, Stephen is going to say later on, like way after Jesus, he says that Moses was probably about 40 years old at this point. So Moses is a 40-year-old man, and he goes out and he's looking at the oppression of the Hebrews, and he identifies with them. Raised in the palace, and, and, and there are rabbinic stories. Uh, uh, these aren't necessarily scriptural stories, but there's a history that says that Moses even served in the Egyptian army and was a commander for the Egyptian army on some campaigns in Africa. So like, he's a grown man, perhaps even a warrior. And he goes out and looks on, on the oppression of his people, his people, and he sees this Egyptian, and he, and he, and he shows compassion, he shows mercy on one. And strikes down his oppressor. Now, I, I pick up that he cares about justice. He's a little bit impulsive. And he's not really, he's not really all that prudent. He just kind of hid, hid him in the sand. Hid the body in the sand. Which, I don't know much about deserts, but I feel like sand is one of those things that is... It's kind of like snow drifts in Indiana. Like, it's just here one day and gone the next, right? So, anyway, so let's see how that plays out. He looked, uh, in verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. I hid that, I hid that. It was supposed to be a secret, but now everybody knows it. Like, these guys who weren't even there, they know the thing that I did. And that's going to be a problem for me. Because I was raised in the Egyptian palace, but I'm identifying with these Hebrews, but these Hebrews have rejected me. Who made you a judge over us? What do you mean, who made you a judge over us? I'm an Egyptian. Like, I'm in the Pharaoh's house. Of course I can tell you what to do. I didn't come to you in authority. I came to you as a brother. Why, do you, why are you striking your companion? He came to bring reconciliation. And they said, we don't need none of that. Are you going to beat us or what? Like, let's move on with our lives. He had settled his identity with the Hebrews, but now it's been unsettled. Because they don't want him. And it's unsettled at a time where he's in danger. He needs a people. <laughs> Surely the thing is known, and when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So there's the third scene. We're in a, a different land, land of Midian, and we found a well. We found a source of water, which if you're you know, going through the desert, that's a good place to sit. Just saying. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, from filled, filled, uh, drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. So they, they're shepherds. They're trying to keep their, their flocks of their father alive. Three daughters. But there were other shepherds who came up and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. So we've got this guy who's on the run who like really, really cares about injustice. He sees these seven girls trying to take care of their father's flock. And then some other bully shepherds come in and chase him off. And he says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And he comes up and he protects the girls. And then he protects the girls and then he feeds, waters all their flock for him. He draws the water. He fills up the troughs. Like he's caring for people. 
And when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, uh, how is it that you've come home so soon today? How did you get back so fast? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And here's the fourth scene. She gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. There's a, there's a conflict in his identity. All of his trouble started when he identified with the Hebrews, but they clearly made it that they did not want him to be judge. They did not want him to be a mediator for them. And he shows up in a foreign land, and it's clear to everybody else that he's an Egyptian. He's a 40-year-old man. He left a lot behind, a life. And he's walking into a strange place, and they recognize him as an Egyptian. He's got a choice to make. What do I tell them about where I came from? Do I identify with the Hebrews? Do I let them just continue to believe I'm an Egyptian? It's not really a lie. I'm just not telling all the truth. And I can be quiet. I can live my life. Like I now, I have a wife now. I'm content. And my suspicion here is that he conforms his identity. I'm tired. I fought, and where did it get me? It got me chased out of town. I lost everything because I stood up for what was right. It didn't matter what, what steps I took to, to, to seek justice in the world. I just kept getting the hammer dropped on me. Things get worse the harder that I try to do good. And I'm tired. I'm 40 years old and nothing's ever changed. The world is the way it is. So he just settles down. Yeah, this is good. This is fine. Name his boy Gershom. I'm a foreigner, a sojourner, wandering in a foreign land. I'm a nobody now. There's a lot of our neighbors that are here. Tried to do what was right and it just blew up in our face and worked hard and nobody noticed and nah, why try? I got my AC and my trailer and I can just let the world do what it's gonna do and I don't have to bother with it. God doesn't seem to care. Ma told me about Abraham and how he walked with God and told me about how Jacob wrestled with God and, and how God blessed him, but all the blessing brought was more pain. What's the point? God doesn't care. He doesn't see these people. I at least was willing to step up and fight, and God didn't do anything. He didn't protect me. He didn't protect them. What do I have to, to gain by sticking my nose out? I'll just keep it to myself. Am I the only one that identifies with this? Like, if you know the story, you're like, okay, let's get to the good news. But I just want you to sit here. Like, in these chapters, the way it's rolled out is like, this should feel heavy. 
And we should not be so quick to jump. Because God meets us here. We spend all our time trying to distract ourselves. We fill our heads with noises and we fill our eyes with pictures and stories that just drown out the things that God is trying to do. We won't allow ourselves to feel sad because maybe God might meet us in our brokenness. He says he's close to the brokenhearted and we won't let ourselves be brokenhearted. We'll self-medicate and we'll do anything we can to feel anything. But that's where God meets us if we're willing to have the boldness to just be there. We must not mistake God's silence for apathy. If we call ourselves a Christian, we do well to remember that our Savior posed the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I know he was quoting a psalm. And I know where that psalm lends. But there's a holy space reserved for those who feel abandoned by God. That the example that our Savior set for us is to walk in suffering. We must not mistake God's silence for apathy. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the emphasis on the many, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God saw, and God knew. The rest of the series will be... uh, God doing stuff. But the question for us will be, who are we? What defines us? Who do we identify with? What's the story that we're telling? Will our questions drive us towards God or away from? We must not mistake God's silence for apathy. Let's pray together. It's been so long, you've brought it to my mind. A couple of times, God, this song, in the darkness, can you hear us? In the nighttime, are we alone? Have you forgotten? With all of the things that go on in the world, Lord, we we have questions. We wrestle. 
we wonder what in God's name you're doing. So Lord, if we're there, would you meet us? Would you help us not to drown out those feelings, but to sit with them for a minute? Not because they're true in and of themselves, but because that feeling of hopelessness can draw us to you. We look to our Savior today, Jesus, who posed the same question, who cried it out at the top of his lungs, why have you forsaken me? And we're reminded that his forsakenness has brought us reconciliation. You've made us friends with you. Not because we are worth it or because we've earned it, but because you are good. Would you remind us of that? Would you draw us deeper? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.